Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come. All you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors. O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We ask that you would speak through your word and through your spirit that we might hear. Give us understanding and give us faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I made it this far without using an introduction from the Olympics. <laughs> but only this far. I've got to do it today. If you remember, actually, last Olympics, it was every single week. 
And part of it is because I, I love the Olympics. It's one of the great sporting events kind of of you know, of our lives, to watch the Olympics. I love the narratives, I love the stories, but I think the thing I love most about the Olympics is the sense of occasion. And by that I mean it's very rare that you get to see sporting events that are so obviously clear where this is your one moment at it. This is your one shot at glory. This is your one try at that thing. You think about it, that's actually what makes all of the the greatest sporting events is that sense of occasion. You know, March Madness with college basketball and you get to see, you know, college age men openly weeping after they lose. Why? Because they know it's their one one chance. I mean, when else do you see college men weeping in public like that? It's the only time. It's a little bit strange sometimes. You get to see it at the Super Bowl, where they have very large grown men weeping publicly afterwards because it's their one shot, most likely their one chance in their career. Uh, The largest sporting event on our planet currently is the World Cup. Ten times more people will watch the World Cup than they will the Olympics. It's the largest event by far, by far. Happens once every four years. And it's interesting, you watch a normal league, like the English league, like Nick and I watch, and there'll be a red card. Your team may get, you know, in in the 38 games of your season, you may see two or three red red cards for bad fouls out of an entire season. You'll see probably one every other game when you watch the World Cup, because guys know this is my one shot at it. If I have to break a guy's leg, I may consider doing that. If I have to use my hands, I may consider doing that. I'll do whatever it takes, because this is my one shot at glory. My favorite was the interview with the gentleman skiing, I think it was from um, Norway, I told this story earlier this week, but uh, where they were asking him, he had had a great run at the downhill and was preparing for the slalom, and the lady he was interviewing had no idea about skiing, which was fine, and she said, you know, you had a, you had a great run, I mean, I don't know anything about skiing, that's fine, uh, you had a great run at the downhill, are you ready for the slalom, you know, with all the gates and the turns and everything, and he's like, I haven't, I haven't skied a slalom gate in two years, <laughs> and she was kind of confused, similar response, like, What? And he's like, yeah, I, I don't ski slalom anymore. And she's like, well, how have your practice runs been? And he's like, oh, I haven't skied this course yet. And she's like, you, you're competing for a gold medal tomorrow. I mean, you're, you're in the top you know, four guys. How have you not skied the course? And his response was really intriguing. He's like, man, my knees only have about 50 gates in them left. And I'm going to use them in competition, not in practice. What a sense of occasion. You're going to have arthritis for the rest of your life, man. That's crazy. And you're willing to compromise all of it because you get that your moment is now and it's your only shot at it. I mean, what a thing. One chance. Your knees literally will not take two runs down the hill. You got it all left on the snow. That's crazy. One moment of time where everything kind of culminates. That's part of what I love about the Olympics. It makes my arm here stand on end to watch them process so much pressure at 19 or 20 or 21 years old and have to not fall apart. The intensity of that exact moment. Those, those kind of moments are very helpful for me to think about when it comes to thinking about Joel chapter 3. Because the Olympics, in so many ways, it, it functions like you know, a pressure cooker on these athletes where you know, decades of preparation, four years of intense preparation, come down to what could be one race. 
It's just staggering, you know. You get less than a minute on the track, and this is your last two decades of preparation. Everything is compressed into one super content-loaded experience. Joel does that in chapter 3 with all of human time. (laughs) He compresses all of human experience. He compresses eternity. He compresses it all into one super-loaded moment to process Judgment Day. This is the moment when everything matters. This is the moment when time stops. This is when everything ends. This is it. It's the the thing. It's the moment. It's, It's what everything has been building to. I mean, the book's been building to that. He started with a, a story about locusts destroying the land. And he's like, guys, 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 it's not about locusts. I mean, locusts are important. They're destroying the land. We're all going to die of starvation. But you know what? It's not about locusts. It's actually about God. And it's about Judgment Day, and it's about the end of time, and now chapter 3 has brought it full circle and brings it into complete clarity. And he has four movements to his thought in this chapter as he walks us through his thought process about the end of time. First, he begins with this idea that time does not continue indefinitely. Preparation does not continue indefinitely. Time is up at some point. For behold, in those days, it's the end days, it's the end time, it's when it all comes to a head. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. It's at that final day, a day where it doesn't continue after that. It's the day where everything changes. It's where you have a lifetime maybe leading up to that point. But there is a point fixed in time where everything is established. There's no changing your mind. There's no changing your decision. There's no changing anything. You're fully committed to the action that you're going to do. One of my favorite Olympic experiences from my childhood was watching diving. I, I really don't particularly care for diving, but this was very, uh, very memorable because it was a very excellent and famous diver who went to jump off, you know, whatever he's jumping off, super high, way up, you know, miles in the air, and his foot slips. But he's committed. And you could watch, even as he dove, this kind of process of like, oh no, I didn't jump the way I wanted. But now is the time of commitment. And so he tried to execute his dive. He ended up actually committing the best belly flop I think I've ever seen. Collapsed both lungs. No, seriously, I mean, he, he collapsed both lungs, broke all of his ribs, and put himself in the hospital for like six months afterwards. Because he, he was in that moment of like, oh no, I, I have to do something. It's too late to change my mind. I want to be back on the diving board, but I can't. I'm diving, but should I be diving? Should I? And he just, he totally committed. He sold it and just wrecked himself. It was an epic belly flop, seriously. It's that moment in time where things are fixed, where it's, it's too late to change. And unfortunately, this is a truth that is out of step with how our world likes to pretend we operate. 
Our culture loves the idea that there's always time to change. It's never too late. It's never like judgment is actually going to come. It's never like you're actually going to get your comeuppance. It's always time for a good redemption story. But there is a reality in the scriptures that we need to come to terms with as God's people. That there's a point where everything ends. There's a point where the things that are visible before us pass away in the form that they are. These visible realities are exchanged for invisible realities. These mortal realities are exchanged for immortal realities. And the problem with this is we don't know when that day is arriving. I mean, I've lived in this town for quite a while. This is an aspect of my life that y'all probably don't know about. I hate seeing ambulances because I never know when one of you is going to be in it. And so every time I drive around town and I see an ambulance heading anywhere, it sends a cold shiver down my spine. Because I never know when your time is up. I don't know when my time is up. And I love you and I care for you and I want to see you do well and your soul to walk with God. And I don't know when the day comes for you. And neither do you. Time does not continue like this indefinitely. There is a distinct end for you. It either comes at death or at the second coming. But on that day, everything changes. It's completely different. And here we see in chapter 3, the Lord is furious. Behold, in those days, at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And uh, this is one of those things for us we are like, cool, random Bible trivia. <laughs> Not for them. Because they understood that the valleys, the big valleys, is where you conducted your large battles. That's where one army lines the rim of one half of the valley. The other army lines the rim of the other half of the valley. You can see each other. You know what you're getting into. And then everybody goes and death follows. What the Lord is portraying here is war. Oh no. He's mad. And I will enter into judgment with them there. He's going to function as the judge. It's going to be a a pronouncement of verdict. And specifically, why is he so mad? And he begins to explain, it's on behalf of my people. This is so shocking to me. As he describes the final judgment day, it's not so much a description of an affront to his glory. Look, they've ignored my name. They've shamed my glory. They've shamed the image of God within them. No, instead here he describes why is he so furious? Because the evil have taken advantage of my people. On behalf of my people... And my heritage, Israel. Israel belongs to him. His people belong to him. 
It would be like if one of you, while I'm preaching in here, snuck into my study and took my keys and hopped in my car and decided to go joyriding around town at, you know, as fast as it will go, which is not particularly fast, and decided that maybe you weren't quite so careful and, you know, clipped some mailboxes or some other cars or dogs or deer or whatever. And, you know, I get out of worship and go to walk to see my car, and you've left me a little note saying, thanks for the ride, you know, so-and-so. And I'm going to be pretty hot, right? I'm going to be pretty angry. Why? Because you've destroyed my car and it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. That's my property. It's not yours. You don't have the right to do that. And that's in essence what the unbelievers have done, interestingly, with God's people. They've taken something that doesn't belong to them and they have abused it. And he gives a pretty clear list of what that abuse looks like. On behalf of my people, my heritage Israel. Why? Because they've scattered them among the nations and, uh, and have divided up my land. So they've, uh, as they've invaded Israel, as they've harmed God's people, they've scattered them everywhere. The land that belongs to God that he specifically gave to his people, they've divided that up, uh, up amongst themselves. They've cast lots for my people. And this is uh, what you would do with, uh, after you invaded, you know, if the army invades the new land, uh, you kill all the old people. Sorry, old people. Uh, you kill all of them. And then all the young people you divide up as the spoils of war. So here is a portrait where Israel has been invaded. Uh, they've had all their old people killed and destroyed. And now uh, what they're doing is they're treating the young people with such callous regard that they're casting lots for them. They're gambling for the kids. And then they give you actually two clear price points for how valuable uh, an Israelite child was. One was for a free, uh, was valued for a few brief moments with a prostitute. The other was for a bottle of wine. I'm going to suggest those are not very high prices. God's people are so shamefully employed, so shamefully treated that the children themselves are not worth more than a few brief clutches of pleasure of a bottle or a body. And God is mad. I mean, four, it's hard to read with the proper venom. What are you to me? Sorry, I never want to hear the Lord ask that question to me. I mean, a lot of his questions that would be asked to me would be wholly terrifying because I have no good answers to him. He knows everything anyways. But this one particularly, what are you to me? I mean, seriously, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, O Tyre and Sidon, all the regions of Philistia, all of the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel? Who do you think you are? Do you think you have a shot? I love this. Are you paying me back for something? Oh, man. Oh, the irony. Oh, that hurts so bad. God asking his enemies, have I done something wrong to you that you think you have to pay me back? Because I know you've done something wrong to me that I'm going to pay back. It's weird hearing God talk about it this way, isn't it? We don't, we don't tend to think of him in this way. This is not the vocabulary that we tend to associate with the gracious God Almighty. If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. And then he continues on. You have taken my silver and my gold. You've carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've disrupted the worship that I had installed in my people. 
Here, even further, you've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks for specific purpose of getting them away from the land. This is a uh, national relocation so that when you invade a country, you take the people that do remain and you sell them off into slavery or servitude into other parts of the world so that they can't uh, fight for their national identity. I mean, think about it. We still have a loaded illustration, but the South will rise again. It's easy to hold that when you still live in the South. It's really hard to hold that when you live in Siberia. Just saying. If you were all relocated, if you know, my family had been taken out of here 100 years ago, it, it's really hard to hold that national identity when you're raised in different food, in different climate, in different region. And that's what they've done. They've taken all of the Jews and relocated them other places. Why? So they stop being Jews. It's an effort to make them stop behaving and looking and being God's people. He's mad. Behold, I will stir them up from the place where you sent them, and I will return your payment on your own head. And verse 8, you have God promising to his enemies, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And oh yeah, now they will sell your children far away. The Lord is mad. Now, for the unbeliever, this should be wholly terrifying. If you are an unbeliever today in our midst and you have ever done anything unkind to the people of God, you fall in the list of people he's angry at. Realistically, how long does it take to do something uh, unkind to the people of God? Hang out with them for a couple of hours and you pretty much are guaranteed to have done that in some form or fashion, right? If you are an unbeliever today, you fall in that category of the person that God is angry with. You should listen carefully for the rest of the sermon. If you are part of God's people already and you know you are, this should be a little bit of a warm comfort to you. That he loves you so much. He's willing to fight for you in a way that honestly probably makes us all a little bit uncomfortable with our current Western sophistication and sensibilities. I mean, think about it. He's pledging to put back on their own head whatever they did to his people. Oh, you did this to my people? That's fine. I'll do it to your family. You hurt my kids? I'll hurt your kids. I mean, that's a little bit staggering, isn't it? And if you're a part of God's people, this should be a little bit of encouragement that he loves you so much, he takes you very seriously. Your well-being is important to him. Psalm 116, he even goes so far as to say, look, your death is important to him because he doesn't waste any aspect of your experience. He doesn't waste your tears. He doesn't waste your joys. You belong to him. You're important to him. He takes the well-being of the saints quite seriously. I'll be honest. I was comfortable preaching up to this point in the sermon. Because these are the easy verses. What follows is probably one of the most spectacularly unpleasant portions of the entirety of the canon. As the Lord begins to taunt his enemies into their destruction... Verse 9, he issues a statement. Proclaim this among the nations, the enemies of God, 
tell them this. Prepare for war. Get your mighty men. Get your soldiers. Let them all show up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Interestingly, Isaiah uh, quotes this in reverse. Most likely Joel wrote it first, and it was a scary, scary passage that Isaiah turns into a promise. This is the Lord saying, come at me. It's time. It's time for us to do battle. You bring everything you have. Hurry, come, all you surrounding nations. Verse 11, gather yourselves here. Why? Because I bring my warriors too. It's time we fight. Let the nations come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there, interestingly, how is he going to fight? Well, (laughs) he's going to first function as judge where he sits and presides over the enemies that show up and looks at them first to say, are you innocent or are you guilty? If you are guilty, you will die. And verses 13 and 14 and 15 is the consequence, and it's brutal to listen to. It's it's brutal when you get the fullness of what the portrait is. He's taking an illustration that would have been very common in Israel. You picked grapes in the heat, and grapes don't keep real well in the heat. I mean, they barely keep well on our counters if you have air conditioning. You have to eat them quickly, and they don't get to eat them all. So what do you do? You would take them into a giant stone that had been hollowed out in the center, and you put all your grapes in it, and then you would mash them and smash them, and crush them, and destroy them, and all the juice would run off. And then in a very hot climate, that juice immediately starts turning into wine. And that becomes your safe water source for the rest of the year until the next harvest of grapes. And the way the grapes served you was by being destroyed. And now, interestingly, the Lord takes that same illustration and says, instead of just a stone that's been hollowed out, instead of a trough where the grapes are going to be trod on, now we're talking about something so great as a valley. And instead of grapes being tread upon and being crushed to produce the juice, now it will be men and women, boys and girls. And instead of the feet of children and maidens crushing the grapes, it will be the feet of my servant. And instead of the wine flowing out, it will be the blood of my enemies. Put in the sickle, better translation is the harvesting knife. Wander through the vineyard, harvest all the grapes, slice them out so that they fall down, collect the grapes, the harvest is ripe, put them into the valley, put them into the wine press, tread on them because it's full of my enemies. The vats overflow with grapes because there are so many enemies, their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes, valley decision is a terrible translation. And if you've grown up in the Southern Baptist world and heard one of their most famous preachers uh, preach this sermon, it, it, he misses. I love him. He's a good man. Um, he misses. It's not the valley of decision. It's the valley of verdict. It's not the grapes that are making the decision. It's God. 
It's the judge sitting on the throne saying, I find you guilty. You die now. Which is why it flows immediately into what? The day of the Lord is near in the valley of verdict and the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. No joke. His wrath is so scary, the stars are like, nope, mm-mm, nope, I, no, uh-uh, not going to happen. I'm out. See ya. I don't know where I got to go, but I'm not going to be here. That's the same kind of language that's used in the Psalms to talk about the mountains when God's wrath shows up. They tremble. They run away. They scamper off. They don't want to be near his wrath. God is angry and destroying his enemies. As if it's not clear enough, verse 16, the first half of it at least, I saved part B for next week. The Lord roars from Zion, that's not a happy roar, (laughs) utters his voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth quake. Creation itself runs from his wrath. You kind of see why I was a little bit intimidated by the latter half of that passage, right? Because we here in the West have adapted and adopted this idea of Grandpa God. Where he's probably a little bit overweight. In fact, actually, I mean, if we're going to be honest, he's just Superman mixed with Santa Claus. I mean, if we're going to be honest, right? I mean, that's kind of our mental image of what we tend to think God is, is that he's the grandpa who constantly gives us treats when mom and dad aren't looking. You know, maybe slips us a 20 to make sure we can buy some food later. He he just spoils us rotten and he's very kind and he's always nice. And the problem is, that's not in the Bible anywhere. And it's certainly not here. In fact, actually, what we have here is the most terrifying thing inside of all of creation. It's where the God who has been outside of creation suddenly steps inside it, not now for redemption, but for wrath. To unmake it. And that should wholly terrify us. And there are certain things I think we should walk away kind of as we think through these uh, pictures, think through these categories, think through a passage like this, certain things that we need to have fixed in our brain. And again, first and foremost, if you are an unbeliever, please do not take this lightly. This is a reality. God hates his enemies and he will destroy them. And he will be right in doing so. Psalm 137 is one of the most difficult passages in the entire scriptures to, to preach because of how it ends. Blessed are those who dash the heads of the babies of God's enemies on the rocks. That's the final verse. What do you do with that? God's wrath is a real thing. And if you're an unbeliever, you need to know that. You need to remember that. Because Christ is the only way to, to miss that. He pays it for us. Secondly, is it's important that we, living in a culture of softness and niceness and grandpa God, to be reminded we got to be biblical in our understanding of who he is. And whether or not we define him certain ways, we're just wrong. Our understanding of him has to be by his word, and we have to bring it into alignment with his word. 
which means that even as his people, we need to be at least a little bit afraid of him. Just a little bit. Not in a fearful, evil way like I don't trust him, but in the sense of he's so much bigger than me. So much stronger than me. For those of you, young men maybe, when you were young, really young, and you wrestled with your dad, and you kind of realized, most guys at some point where they realized, oh, he's not trying. Because if he was trying, he would break me in half. I, I trust him fully, but I also know he's way stronger than me. To have that kind of realization, maybe when how we deal with God, because what's going to happen is when you think about him that way, are you going to complain the same? Or are you going to have a bad attitude toward him the same? No. Are you going to be maybe a little bit more humble before him? And are we going to rejoice in the salvation that he has given? Yeah. I mean, it makes Romans 5, 8. Again, you know my favorite verse. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It makes it shocking. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he send his son to that? Because that's what his son pays for me. That's what his son experiences on the cross for me. It's why when we come to a table where he says, uh, do this and remember, remember my death. Yes, please do. Because he pays that for me. All of that wrath that I have stored up, all of that wrath that I have earned is poured out upon his perfect son so I never, ever experience it. Yes, please never forget that. And lastly, I might suggest again one of the great struggles of Christianity in the West right now is maybe our our flippancy, how casual, how silly, how how just we kind of just throw out our faith and just kind of ignore it. And it's just it's it's handled so lightly. Part of that is because I think we've neglected passages like this. Because there's nothing light about this passage. There's not really anything light about this sermon. Why? Because it's in the scriptures and this is who God is. We can't just pick up the positive elements and forget the rest of the story. It's going to reshape how we think about the lost, how we think about our family, how we think about our neighbors, how we think about our friends, how we think about each other. Because God is serious in his judgment. And if you want to appreciate the salvation that Jesus accomplished, you in some form or fashion need to appreciate the judgment he endured on your behalf. That all of that anger, that perfect wrath that God is always, and put that in your brain, God is always love, he is always wrath. He's never not wrathful, he's always wrath. That's paid for in Christ. Something we get to experience here at the table in just a moment. But it's extremely important. Because again, you never know. When is your time? When is your moment? When is your time up? This is your shot. Father, we do thank you for your word, even when it's um, unpleasant to our emotions initially. We know that problem is our fault and not yours. 
For your word is sweeter than honey, and it is life to those who heed it. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.